Hi, my name is Anna. The Old Testament reading is found in Isaiah 59, the second half of 15 through 17. The Lord looked and was upset at the absence of justice, seeing that there was no one and astonished that no one would intervene. God's arm brought victory, upheld by righteousness, putting on righteousness as armor and a helmet of salvation on his head, putting on garments of vengeance and wrapping himself in a cloak of zeal. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Larissa, and the New Testament reading is found in Ephesians 6, 10 to 12, and 18 to 20. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and his powerful strength. Put on God's armor so that you can make a stand against the tricks of the devil. We aren't fighting against human enemies, but against rulers, authorities, forces of cosmic darkness, and spiritual powers of evil in the heavens. Offer prayers and petitions in the spirit all the time. Stay alert by hanging in there and praying for all believers. As for me, pray that when I open my mouth, I'll get a message that confidently makes the secret plan of the gospel known. I'm an ambassador in chains for the sake of the gospel. Pray so that the Lord will give me the confidence to say what I have to say. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Katie. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Matthew 12, 24 through 30. When the Pharisees heard, they said, This man throws out demons only by the authority of Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Because Jesus knew what they were thinking, he replied, Every kingdom involved in civil war becomes a wasteland. Every city or house torn apart by divisions will collapse. If Satan throws out Satan, he is at war with himself. How then can his kingdom endure? And if I throw out demons by the authority of Beelzebul, then by whose authority do your followers throw them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if I throw out demons by the power of God's spirit, then God's kingdom has already overtaken you. Can people go into a house that belongs to a strong man and steal his possessions unless they first tie up the strong man? Then they can rob his house. Whoever isn't with me is against me, and whoever doesn't gather with me scatters. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to our Lord. Let's remain standing as we pray. Father, we ask that you would let your Holy Spirit renew our hearts again this morning that we would hear your word and it would bring life and light to us, that we would be strengthened in the power of the Lord today, even as we hear your word proclaimed. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as Pastor Evans said just a moment ago, it is Pentecost Sunday. Uh, it is the conclusion of the Easter tide season. Uh, Easter lasts seven Sundays, and so 49 days, and this 50th day, it marks now the beginning of a Pentecost as the season. It's the, the day we remember, kind of the birthday of the church, if you will, uh, when God poured out his spirit on the disciples who were gathered there in the upper room, and uh, they were gathered there for their own uh, feast of Pentecost 
which celebrated the giving of the law in the Old Testament and God poured out his spirit on them to say now uh, the new creation begins, the new people of God begins. And so it's a wonderful, wonderful day that we mark as a church and it's a way to remember that God's personal and empowering presence is at work in the world through us as his church. But as we sit here today, we're also painfully aware that it isn't just the Spirit of God who is at work in the world. There's also something dark and evil at work in the world. In fact, what's interesting is even people who are reluctant to talk about God, uh, people who maybe remain agnostic or even atheistic about God or anything divine or good, are not as reluctant to use language like evil. And so in the face of attacks and of atrocities that are happening all around the globe, we hear world leaders invoke this language and say, this is an evil ideology or these are evil actions. And so evil becomes this thing that people are comfortable referring to even while they remain uncomfortable talking about God. And the question for us as Christians is to say, what do we do with evil in the world? When we think about the attacks last night in London and not long before that in Manchester and Kabul and the Coptic Christians, the persecution that they are suffering in Egypt and we could name headline after headline after headline and say there is evil at work in the world. And we can't sit here on a Sunday morning and say, it's all great, the Holy Spirit has come, isn't it wonderful, it's all great. It's just about the Holy Spirit. We have to also say, there are also evil spirits. And so as the church, our question this morning is, what do we do about this? In fact, the scriptures are less interested in helping us trace the origins of evil and more interested in showing us what God has done about evil, what God will do about evil, and what that means for us as the people of God as we live in evil days. And so we've been in this series now in the book of Ephesians, particularly Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, and we said that that the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul kind of lays the groundwork, and he says that God's power is the one who raised up Jesus, and God's power is the thing that's at work now that that is putting the world all back together again. And then in chapter 4, Paul kind of pivots and begins to talk pastorally and says, okay, so now live this way, live in a way that's worthy of this call live in unity, don't live as you once used to live. And we've covered each of those uh, themes throughout this series. We've talked about what it means to live in love, to have our relationships and especially the close intimate relationships to be reformatted, reoriented, reshaped by a Christ-like love. We've talked about what it means to live as children of light, showing forth God's wisdom in the world And we talked recently, a couple weeks ago, about our close proximity relationships, our household relationships, and what it means to live in the light of God's wisdom with our relationships in marriage and parents and children and on and on it goes. If you will, Ephesians 3.10 is sort of like Paul's summary of his first three chapters and a little bit of his preview of the next three chapters. And in Ephesians 3.10, Paul says, God's purpose is now to show the rulers and the powers in the heavens the many different varieties of his wisdom throughout the church. 
If you think about this, what Paul is saying is, look, there are, there are powers, there are authorities that are at work in the heavenlies, but God has put them on notice. God's power is at work in Jesus, he says in Ephesians 1. It's God's power that raised up Jesus and seated him at the right hand of the Father. And then he says, and God's power, God's wisdom rather, is on display through the church, putting the rest of the powers of the world on notice. In other words, through you and through me and through us as the church, God is announcing to evil principalities, evil spirit forces, and saying to them, listen, your time is up. There is another way of living, and it doesn't look like that. It looks like this. It doesn't look like the kind of lust that depersonalizes and ruins people. It looks like self-giving, sacrificial love. There's a way of reordering the home and reordering the workplace and reordering all of our relationships. And so God's wisdom is on display through you and me. That's what Paul begins to announce. But now in Ephesians 6, three chapters later, Paul wants us to know, by the way... It's not just that I'm making an announcement to the powers, but the powers also push back. The powers also push back. And so in Ephesians 6, we'll pick it up here in verse 10. He says, Finally be strengthened by the Lord and his powerful strength. Put on God's armor so that you can make a stand against the tricks of the devil. We aren't fighting against human enemies, but against rulers, authorities, forces of cosmic darkness, and spiritual powers of evil in the heavens. Paul says, look, it's not just that God has put the powers on notice. It's that the powers will also push back. There is a fight. There is a struggle. C.S. Lewis, years ago, in, in his very famous work, The Screwtape Letters, talks about one of the, the tactics of the enemy is to either get us to fixate on the devil and be overly obsessed with everything the devil's doing, or to ignore him altogether. And to imagine that there is no such thing as evil, that actually we're all okay and there's nothing really wrong, and that actually these are human problems and we can fix them with human solutions, and if we just had better systems and structures and institutions and schools and opened more McDonald's around the world, everybody would be great. And Paul says, no, there's something at work in the world that lets us know things are deeply wrong here. And he says there is a struggle against evil. So right off the bat, we have to say we are engaged in a struggle against evil. We are engaged in a struggle against evil, but it's not what you might think. And right away here in these first three verses, I wanna, or in these first couple of verses, I want to point out three things. Three reasons that the struggle is real, but not always what you think. Okay, and the first is this. People are not the enemy. People are not the enemy. And Paul says it bluntly. He says, look, we are engaged in the struggle, but we wrestle not. If you memorize the King James Version, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. These are not human enemies. It seems like in our day, we are tempted to make one or two mistakes. The one is to say people are basically good, and if you just gave them the right education, and again, Starbucks and McDonald's, we'll all love one another. Right? People are just, we're basically good. And we kind of think, ah, oh, that can't be true. Or we make the opposite error and we say, evil is a, a human enemy that we have to defeat. And this is why, on one level, it was deeply troubling to listen to world leaders post 9 11 say, we will rid the world of this evil. I say, well, 
I'm not sure you can do that. And secondly, we must be careful not to confuse the evil one with human beings that the evil one is at work through. And Paul says that they are, the enemy is not ultimately another human being. The enemy is not ultimately another flesh and blood, even though we are tempted to be convinced. It's them. It's these kinds of people. It's those kinds of people. And Paul says, you're getting hung up on the wrong thing. It's not about these people. But then Paul also says, look, these are rulers and authorities, forces of cosmic darkness. In the, in the Greek there, these are words that, that, that betray a sense of hierarchy and structures. One of the things we have ignored as Christians is that evil is at work not just through disobedient individuals, but also through immoral and unjust systems. Not just through disobedient people, but through immoral and unjust systems. This is why it is right to talk about systematic racism, ways of organizing neighborhoods that prevent people below a certain income level from spreading too close to those above that income level. This is real, you guys. And we have to talk about evil not only operating through individuals, but enshrined in systems and structures that allow people to abuse power and keep the poor oppressed. Paul says this this is the real thing that's at work. And in fact, it it even gets darker as we think about, look, the same systems that can deliver to us goods and merchandise that are affordable can also be, and I emphasize can also be, the systems that are used to oppress people around the world. And so there's human trafficking that isn't just about sex trafficking, but is also about labor trafficking. And all of a sudden, we were, there are systems and structures through which evil is operating. I was talking with a friend of mine who just returned from a fairly developed country in the global south, and, and I, I thought they were sort of beyond this. And he said, oh yeah, just the other day, the government shut down power in one area of the country, not because they didn't have enough electricity, but because they had bargained it off to a neighboring country for that week. And they could sell off electricity to the highest bidder. This is not right. And so when we think about our struggle with evil, number one, people are not the enemy, but number two, systems and structures are also at play. And it's time we get honest about that. And then third, the third thing that we need to know is when Paul says we aren't fighting, our struggle is not against uh, flesh and blood, that Greek word for struggle is a close hand-to-hand kind of combat. This is why some Bible translations say we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but there's a, the, the fight is closer than you think. The fight is closer than you think. Sometimes we're tempted to say evil is what those people do. And Paul says evil is what y'all used to do. <laughs> okay? Listen to this. Ephesians 2 verse 2, he says, you used to live like people of this world. You followed the rule of a destructive spiritual power. There it is again. 
You followed it, Paul says. This is the spirit of disobedience to God's will that is now at work in persons whose lives are characterized by disobedience. Paul says, listen, listen, listen. The spirit, the powers of, the, of evil, the destructive spiritual powers work through human disobedience. And that means the struggle is closer than you think. Because every time we are tempted to, to disobey God, we are putting ourselves in a position where we are cooperating with destructive spiritual powers. And every time we obey God, we are not. We are standing against it. But this makes it fairly clear to us that every day we're faced with these choices of whom to cooperate with. And so, in the words of that Russian author Alexander Solzhenitsyn who was exiled to Siberia, He said, the line between good and evil doesn't run between nations or states, but runs through every human heart. This is also what the gospel says to us. That the struggle against evil is not just out there. It's not primarily political. (laughs) It's right here. Every time I'm tempted to ignore God, rebel against God, and do my own thing, I am tempted to collude with destructive spiritual powers. So Paul says, don't, we, we, we don't want to do that. So what do we do about the evil that is in the world? What are we to do about it? Paul tells us two things in Ephesians 6. These are his closing words, you guys. If you've ever heard final instructions, commencement speeches, you know, all of those kinds of, the last charge, this is Paul's last speech to the church in Ephesus. And he tells them to do two things, to put on the armor of God and to pray. And I want us to take a closer look at both of those things right now. Ephesians 6 verse 13, the armor of God. He says, therefore, pick up the full armor of God so that you can stand your ground on the evil day. And after you have done everything possible to still stand. So stand. How many times has he said stand now? Three. (laughs) And earlier in verse 10, uh, verse 11, he said it. So there's four. Stand with the belt of truth around your waist, justice or righteousness as your breastplate. Put shoes on your feet so that you are ready to spread the good news of peace. And above all, carry the shield of faith or faithfulness fidelity so that you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is God's word. Now I grew up around church and I had some great children's ministry teachers that tried to make the armor of God come alive, you know, so some of you will remember flannel graph uh, illustrations of this and you put it on the board and there's the helmet and there's the, you know. And, and one of my teachers got really zealous about this, that she admonished each of us kids to every day before we walked out of the house to put on the armor of God, you know, like you wouldn't leave the house without your clothes on, right? So you better put on your shoes of the gospel of peace and you better put on, and that's all great. It's, it's wonderful, imaginative ways of helping us take this on. But, but there was something deeper going on here that I missed for so long. And that is that the armor of God, it's almost hidden in plain sight, the armor of God is God's armor. It's God's armor. That means it's not primarily about your faith or your righteousness or your salvation or your peace. It's about God. 
Now listen to this. We heard the Old Testament readings out of Isaiah. Here's Isaiah 11. He will judge the needy with, the, with righteousness and decide with equity for those who suffer in the land. He will strike the violent with the rod of his mouth. By the breath of his lips, he will kill the wicked. Righteousness will be the belt around his hips and faithfulness the belt around his waist. Then Isaiah 59. And the Lord looked and was upset at the absence of justice. Seeing that there was no one and astonished that no one would intervene, God's arm brought victory upheld by righteousness, putting on righteousness as armor and a helmet of salvation on his head, putting on garments of vengeance, wrapping himself in a cloak of zeal. You see, when Paul uses this language, he's not riffing from nothing. He's remembering Isaiah. He's remembering Isaiah's prophetic visions And he's reminding the Christians in Ephesus, listen, it is God who is clothed with righteousness and justice. It is God who who is girded up by truth. It is God whose faithfulness will make the difference. This is about God's truth, God's justice, God's faithfulness, God's peace, and God's salvation. So putting on God's armor actually means standing in God's power. Putting on God's armor means standing in God's power. It doesn't mean you sort of have to find the resources, find the strength. Okay, I've got to go get ready to figure out if I've been righteous enough, if I have enough faith. If I, you know. It's about standing in God's power. We heard the gospel reading this morning about Jesus responding to people who said to him, you're casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul, which some, you know, a lot of discussion about what exactly they're talking about, but either way we know it's sort of a dark power. And Jesus says, you don't get it, do you? He says, how would I do that? Why would I drive out evil by evil's power? Something else has happened. And then Jesus gives this metaphor. He says, look, if there's a strong man, if there's a, a tyrant that has taken over, you can't take back what he's taken until the strong man is bound. Now, I spent so many years in my youth thinking it was up to me to bind the strong man. I spent so much of my life thinking that I am the one that has to do spiritual warfare so that I can take things back. But when you read the Gospels, what's Jesus saying? He's saying, look, if you notice that the strong man's house is being plundered, i.e., if you notice that the sick are being healed and people are being set free, that's telling you something. The strong man is bound. The strong man has been bound. In other words, it is Jesus who is stronger than the strong man. It is Jesus who has bound the strong man. And it's Jesus who is saying, look, I've already rendered him powerless. You go ahead and take it back. You go ahead. I've already rendered him powerless. It is not for you and I to bind the strong man. It's for you and I to stand in the victory that Christ has won. I think one of the reasons why we lose this is because we are convinced that the gospel is not actually good news, but good advice. And so we take this word gospel, the Greek word euangelion, which literally means good news, and we've turned it into good advice. And so we read a text about the armor of God, and we're like, oh, that's good advice. I'm going to do that. Instead of saying, do you know what's at the heart of this armor of God passage? is good news. 
about God's victory. See, in the first century, around the time of the first century, there was Octavian, the Caesar who came to be called Caesar Augustus, who when he had achieved enough victories to say that he was the heir to Julius Caesar's throne, he sent out a message throughout the region, and it was called Euangelion, gospel, gospel. Augustus Caesar has won a victory, a new reign has begun, one day all enemies will be vanquished, but for now, and he would use these words, freedom, prosperity, and peace are yours. And the first believers, the first followers of Jesus said, yeah, that's fake news. That's not good news. That, no, that's not true. Jesus is the king who has won a great victory. And because of his great victory, one day we will all see it coming to pass. And in the meantime, we now live differently, love differently, serve differently. We stand in the victory that Jesus has already won. That's why repeatedly Paul says, stand, 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 stand. How many times do we get confused that it's our job to fight back, fight back, fight back? Paul says, stand. The gospel is about the good news that God has already won a great victory in Christ and because of that victory, one day all things will be made new. One day death itself will be swallowed up in victory and every tear will be wiped away and heaven and earth will be made new and we shall receive resurrection bodies and between then, now and then, we will stand. That's what we do. We stand. This weekend I was reminded of a story from June 1944 in London. There's a great preacher named D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Some of you will be familiar with that name. And the week prior to that Sunday of worship, the bombings had really ratcheted up and a historian estimates that about 10,000 people had been killed in the bombings that week. And Christians gathered to worship that Sunday because this is what Christians do. Just as the Coptics in Egypt have continued to gather in worship in buildings that are rubble. And D. Martin Lloyd-Jones stands up to begin to pray before preaching his sermon and sirens start going off. An air raid warning is being issued. He keeps praying his long prayer. He's quite an orator. All of a sudden he has to stop because the sound of something flying overhead is roaring now. It's close. Pauses. Boom. A bomb is dropped. The building shakes. White dust from the ceiling is falling on all of the worshipers there that day. Some of them are ducking. And then after it's over, he says, he gets back up. And he says, if, if some of you would like to move to the gallery, please do that. They shift their seats. A deacon dusts off the debris from the pul- pulpit, and he stands up and continues to preach. I think that is the picture of what we do. We stand because we don't take our cues from current events. We stand because we don't take our cues from headlines. That is news of a certain kind, but we are people who know the real news. Jesus is king. Death will not win. This is my father's world.
God's power in the book of Ephesians is a massive theme and you could look at Ephesians 1 sometime, 18 through 21, and just underline how many times Paul emphasizes the power of God, the power of God, the power of God, the power of God. When I say stand, it's not something we do with our own strength. It's stand in the power of God. To put on God's armor is to stand in God's power. But then the second thing he says to do is to pray. Verse 18, offer prayers and petitions in the Spirit all the time. Stay alert by hanging in there and praying for all believers. And as for me, pray that when I open my mouth, I'll get a message that confidently makes the secret plan of the gospel known. Do you see it? Paul's saying, I have given my life to proclaim the good news. Now pray that I'll keep proclaiming it. Pray that my whole life will continue to be about this. I'm an ambassador in chains for the sake of the gospel. Pray so that the Lord will give me the confidence to say what I have to say. I love the way Paul ends this letter because early on in Ephesians, Paul's the one praying for them. Ephesians 1, Paul's, I pray for you that you'll do. Ephesians 3, I'm praying that you will be able to know the love of God. All of this stuff. Now Ephesians 6. I wonder if this is a a tender Paul. Paul who's realizing that he's in chains. Paul who's unsure about what the next thing is going to be for him. This isn't Paul in in the book of Acts who, when he's in prison, he and Silas are singing songs of praise. That's maybe a younger, more upbeat Paul. I don't know. But you get the sense here that Paul is like, he's feeling it a bit. He's saying, hey guys, pray also for me. Pray also for me. Pray also for me. There's something about prayer that puts us all on the same ground, doesn't it? Because there's not one of us that can stand in our own strength. Not one of us who can. Not me. Not you. Not the worship team. Not the other pastors, not the volunteers, not the people. Nobody stands in their own power. My power to stand is just as weak as your power to stand. But God's power to strengthen us is strong enough to strengthen all of us. And so prayer is how we help each other to stand in God's power. Prayer is how we help each other to stand in God's power. That's why he says, pray for the believers all around the world. This is why it's important, you guys. Pray for the Christians in Egypt. Pray for the Christians today in England. Pray for the church. Pray, pray, pray. This isn't just a cute thing that we do. This is how we actually join God's work. Paul doesn't treat prayer as auxiliary, optional, extra credit for the super Christians. He said, this is what we need to do. And it's not just me, the Apostle Paul, praying for you. It's I'm asking you to pray for me. We've got to do this. It's how we help each other to stand in God's power. I'm wearing this yellow bracelet today because in the 9 a.m. service, they invited different members of our church to pray for the campers at Royal Family Kids Camp this week. And so some got the name of a big camper, i.e. an adult, And some got the name of a little camper. The idea is to lift them up in prayer. Prayer has a way of kind of reinforcing our relationships with one another, doesn't it? You can go to a deeper place. You can 
So if, if you've ever had a moment where you're praying with a friend, and maybe a friend you've known for a little while, but all of a sudden there's a moment of vulnerability, a moment of honesty, and then there's prayer, and you emerge from that, and you're like, wow, we just went through something there. We just walked through something there. We were in the foxhole there together. Prayer can do that. Every couple months I have a group of guys that five of us have known each other for about 20 years and we take a half a day or sometimes a full day, very often a full day, um, with no agenda but just to be with one another and pray for one another. And it never fails but, you know, after, the, you know, a meal and some conversation and laughter and all, it never fails that there's always one, one of us who particularly was needing prayer that season. And most recently, the, one of the guys was just talking about the oh, feeling overwhelmed by the illness in the family and a struggle over here and just, it was all pressing and the fight had come near. And I was thinking how foolish it seemed, you know, you had those moments where you step back and you look at the scene and you're like, oh my gosh, if anybody Instagrammed this, we'd look like total fools right now, you know. He's stretched out on the couch just weeping. Another friend is like, you know, rubbing his head as he's praying fervently, quoting scripture. Someone else is like saying, getting visions for him and another person is giving a prophetic word. We're all weeping grown men pushing 40. We're like, this is absolute lunacy. Like, I hope nobody sees this moment, right? People that if you saw them in their quote-unquote normal life, like, oh, that person is so strong. And then you realize in prayer there's permission to be weak. In prayer, there's permission to say, like Paul, hey, would you, would you pray for me also? I pray that I'll never be afraid. Pray that I'll have the courage. Pray for me also. Think about the moments where my wife and I grab one another's hands and say, well, I'm just going to pray over you right now. Pray about this. Pray for this day coming up. Pray for this week coming up. And the way that that forges a unity even in a marriage Love teaching our kids to pray uh, for one another, pray for each other, but then also to pray for their friends. The other day we heard a story of one of Jonas's, Jonas is our son, he's about seven, heard a story of one of his friends praying for him. Jonas has had a a difficult year of of figuring out some dietary sensitivities and, and food stuff, some allergy issues, some not quite that level, but it's just been a, a process of uh, figuring out what triggers the pain and all this stuff and and we saw uh, his aunt's friend, or his friend's aunt, rather, the other day. And she said, every time I'm with Wilson, we say, what should we pray for? And Wilson says, let's pray for my friend Jonas for his food sensitivities. He says, pray that Jonas will be able to eat processed food again. You know? I'm like, yeah, I don't know about that part of it. You know? like, I think it's probably okay that he doesn't. You know? But it's sweet, isn't it? Prayer is how we help one another stand in God's power. Today's meal group launch Sunday. You, you may recall this if you've been around here for a while, but when meal groups began, it was never about topics. It was never about the study. It was about the breaking and sharing of life, lives. So to this day, Evan has said, the main things we want you to do is meet, eat, and pray. Study and all that, that's cute, that's fine, that's great, that's helpful, whatever. 
The real koinonia, the real fellowship and sharing of lives comes when you slow down long enough to face each other around the table and in that moment, out of that moment of conversation and vulnerability, there arises a mutuality of prayer. And you say, Let's, let me, can I pray for you right now? And you know, don't, don't do the thing of like, oh, I'm going to pray for you. And you're like, yeah, you don't know when you're going to pray for them. Just, I mean, just stop, right? Can, can we pray right now? Let me just, let's pray, right? Pray for one another. And as we close this morning and get ready to come to the table, the final thing I want us to see is how God achieved his great victory. So we have these passages in Isaiah that show God the warrior. And you're like, yes, I love it. God is like William Wallace. And everybody in the first century thought that too because they'd all been reading Isaiah as well. And so they saw Jesus and they're like, I love it. Jesus, you're the one. You, you talked about the spirit of God being upon you. We think you are the Messiah. We think you are how God has come to be king on earth. And so when are you going to do it, Jesus? When are you going to take up the belt of truth and the righteousness? When are you going to use your rod and smite, smite the killers on the jaw and all of the stuff that the psalmist prayed? And imagine their shock and horror and confusion as they stared up at the cross that day as Jesus, naked, bloodied, bruised, hung there dying and said, Father, forgive them. And the disciples were like, is that what victory looks like? Is that what power looks like? I thought we were supposed to, God was going to come in power and blast the enemies off the face of the earth. And they look at the crucified God. And they say, wait a minute. Maybe we've got this all wrong. Maybe power is actually self-giving, sacrificial love. Maybe weakness is actually strength. Maybe what Paul says is foolishness to the world is the very wisdom of God. Maybe the foolishness and the weakness of the cross is the victory of God. And so in the book of Revelation, John keeps referring to Jesus as the Lion of Judah. The Lion who reigns. But every time John opens his eyes in the vision, he doesn't see a lion. He never sees a lion. He sees a lamb who was slain. Because the lamb who was slain is the lion who reigns. And to stand in God's victory is to believe that in the end, that is how we win. The book of Revelation is all about people who've been martyred and kicked around and persecuted and pushed. And they're wondering, is this it? And John says, let me tell you what I see. What I see is the martyrs actually sit on thrones who will judge the world. Let me tell you what I see. The lamb who was slain becomes the lion who reigns. And so John says, oh, I get it now. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they themselves love not their lives even unto death. Standing in God's victory, in God's power, has very little to do with the fight we think about. And it has everything to do 
with turning over our lives to Jesus. Would you bow your heads this morning?